Why is Jesus the Isn't the Bible full God? of contradictions? What about those who never heard of Christ? Don't all the basically why is the Bible so special? Are there answers to these questions? Are there answers to these questions? Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here. I'm looking forward to spending some time with you, looking at Scripture today, and um, well, kind of just jumping into some really cool stuff that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. And so, welcome to First Christian Church. I want to speak with you today about, um, and the weeks ahead, uh, about some questions that I think are legitimate, that people have about faith, about Christianity, about Jesus Christ, and see if we can bring some reasonable answers to bear in that regard. Because I suspect uh, you've got questions of God, others do too, and I do, and so uh, welcome. My name is Wayne, I'm part of the pastoral team, and we're very glad you're with us today, particularly those, we're glad everybody's here, but if you're a guest, we're really thrilled you're here as well. And so to set this up, I uh, did some looking around to see what the various kinds of questions that people ask of God, and came across um, questions that children ask of God which seem to be uh, very helpful for us to at least start the discussion. Dear God, Jane writes, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you keep the ones you've got? (laughs) All right. uh, Jim writes, "Uh, dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed in church. Is that okay? Yeah, it's a good place to kiss. Jennifer, in Bible times, dear God, did they really talk that fancy? That child obviously went to a church where they did King James Version, okay? Dear God, Robert writes, I'm an American. Are you? No. No. (laughs) Ruth's into um, inventions and things that machinery, it would appear. Ruth is a mechanically minded person. She said, dear God, is the stapler your best invention? I think so. What she does with a stapler, I have no idea, but there you go. Joyce writes, Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but I prayed for a puppy. How come? <laughs> Nan is from your family. She writes, Do you really love everyone in the world, God? There are only four people in our family, and I can't do it. Mikey's really proud of his wardrobe. He says, dear God, can you watch me in church? I'll show you my new shoes. Oh, all right, okay. Denise, dear God, this, she's probably part Christian and part Hindu and part Buddhist, okay? Dear God, if I have to come back as someone else, reincarnation, do I have to come back as Jennifer Horton because I really hate her? And finally, Peter writes, Dear God, please do not send Dennis Clark to my camp this year. Send him to a different camp. Oh, you wonder what happened at camp. All right. So what questions do you have that you would like to ask God? I think all of us do. I know if we ever get to heaven, we say, when I get to heaven, I want to put my hand up and say, uh, can I be in the question section? I've got lots of things to ask. And um, uh, maybe I should start with a story of a man who asks questions. His name is Mike Lysona. He found himself recently at a spiritual crossroads. He knew it and his wife Debbie knew it as well. He describes the moment where they acknowledged that they had some issues and that he particularly had some issues that he had to deal with. He says it this way, one night I was lying in bed and I figured my wife was asleep. We probably hadn't said anything for more than half an hour. And then I heard her voice pierce the darkness. Mike, you're doubting again, aren't you? 
he could avoid it no longer, doubt had made a dramatic entry into this apologist's life. It's not convenient for an apologist to have questions. He was the apologetics, is the apologetics coordinator for the Southern Baptist Convention's mission board. He has a reputation as a stalwart defender of Christianity. And apologetics, perhaps you're not familiar with that, apologetics from the Christian perspective is the study and defense of Christian thought and theology from the perspective of a reasoned argument. In other words, it was his job to tell people why they should believe in God. Not how, but why. He'd written two books on the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, and it was his job to literally travel the country and visit both congregations and college campuses and explain from a reasoned defense the perspectives of Christian faith. But as he was involved in his studies, he could feel there was this presence kind of lurking at the edge of his consciousness. And that night as they were in bed, Mike began to share his doubts with Debbie. He was very confident, he said, in the actual reality of God. That was fair enough. But he couldn't seem to shake the misgivings that he had about some core Christian beliefs, including this one, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if he couldn't believe that, I mean, that was a problem because he'd based his academic career on writing books about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, in the middle of my doubts, there's only one thing I knew for certain. He said this to Debbie. When I conclude my research, if I conclude that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you know what this means, right? I'll have to resign my position and I'll have to look for another line of work. Mike is a perennial second guesser. As a matter of fact, he says he not only second guesses about his faith, but he second guesses about everything. It's one of his idiosyncrasies and perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're here today and you too our second guesser. If so, welcome. Welcome. And let's begin a conversation over the coming weeks to see what truth we can discern. And in in what we're going to try and unpack over the coming weeks, starting today with just affirming questions, the long-term goal, hope, is that we will examine this sort of question over the next six weeks. Is this Jesus stuff And is this Christianity sustainable, workable, tenable in a culture that is full of science and skepticism and technological advancements? The 21st century. Can it work? Does Jesus really make sense? Does Christianity make sense? If you've got those kinds of questions, I'm really glad you're here. Really glad. I want to start by acknowledging and affirming that questions are an authentic part of being human. We are not machines. We are not robots. Humans think, and we are charged with the responsibility of discernment for every event and every decision in life. Animals aren't, can't do that. They're not responsible for the care of the planet. And when I say the care of the planet, I mean just environmentally. We are responsible to make sure that there's a tomorrow. Even a well-informed monkey at the, at the height of, if you will, the intellectual chain below humans, even a well-informed monkey cannot make decisions about the welfare of a river, can't make decisions about how to care for a particular group of people. A well-informed monkey doesn't know how to discern if a leg is broken and how to mend it. A well-informed monkey cannot plant a crop. 
That's the responsibility we're given to human beings. And part of that responsibility involves making decisions. The art of making wise, informed decisions requires and involves questions you have to ask. Given this situation, what should I do? Given that matter over there, what should I do? Somebody comes by your house this week, perhaps, to look. The roof is 18 years old on your house, and you go, it's about time to think about replacing it. And so that person's going to give an estimate of what it's going to take for you to have your roof replaced. And you will ask this question, is this a reasonable estimation, or do I doubt the veracity of the estimator's work? You face it in terms of your relationship and your responsibilities with your kids. you got a 16-year-old daughter who just got her license and you are faced with the decision. I have to ask questions about her abilities to drive and her, her, her lifestyle and her life approach. And you say, which car is appropriate for her to drive? The family car? A tank? Or a smart car? Which one? I don't know. You have to figure that out, right? Or your nine-year-old got a bunch of money from your mother at Christmas time. And his primary thing is he wants to buy every Lego Star Wars set there is with all that money. And it's your responsibility to say, is that wise? And you have to ask questions about, should we spend, you know, all that money on Lego? Questions are needed. Questions lead to decisions. And it's the same within our faith. We get to ask questions. I get it that some people say, well, you can't have faith and ask questions. Why not? As a matter of fact... I understand that belief in God and then belief in Jesus Christ is not automatic. Some people don't believe in God, so thus they wouldn't believe in Jesus Christ. Some people believe in, in God, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And if you will, it's a continuum for me. And I, I understand that in order to have faith in Jesus Christ, you have to start with faith in God. And so in order to have faith in God, you've got a little bit of faith to grow. Particularly if you're a second guesser. It's like you need a little bit of information right now. And uh, if you can get a little bit of information and kind of ruminate on that and think of that a little bit, then somebody can come along and give you a booster shot so the faith grows a little bit more. And then the right conversation, the appropriate book, a momentous event takes place and you go, okay, now my faith is beginning to grow, 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 grow. And frankly, what we can see happen is that you can move from non-faith to believing in God to come to the place where you'd say, well, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, to come to the place where you say, well, I'm willing to trust in Him for my eternal destiny. Here's my plan, my hope, if you will, over the next six weeks. I'm hoping that I can, if, if you will, answer one question at a time in the coming weeks and each week give you a booster shot in the arm of just a little bit more faith, a little bit more reason to think about faith as something that is reasonable. And to that end, let me start by saying this. That you may think that doubt is the opposite of faith. It's not. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And there's an important distinction between having questions and unbelief. What is unbelief? Well, generally in the Bible, unbelief uh, refers to a willful decision to say, although I am, I am given this information and this, if, if you will, evidence about the existence of God and the truth of Jesus Christ, I'm choosing to not participate. That is what scripture calls unbelief. A deliberate decision to say, it's not for me. But that's not what doubt is. 
Doubt is to be indecisive or, if you will, be ambivalent over an issue. It's where you're hung up between certainty and uncertainty. It's where you can say, I really don't know if I can land squarely on this matter. You've got questions or concerns about some facet of what you see is presented as faith. And you can have a strong faith and still have questions. You can be heaven-bound, if you will, and still express some uncertainty over theological issues. You can be a full-fledged Christian and yet say, well, not every issue in my life has been settled. In fact, I would suggest that struggling with the issues of faith and trying to figure out the answers to life and the questions of life doesn't show a lack of faith. In fact, it is faith, isn't it? It's saying, I'm holding these things in tension, but I'm still choosing to believe. You know, we see it in, in all kinds of people, both in Scripture and even in people who are around us today who would consider themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. If you think about the, one of the iconic religious figures of the last 100 years, uh, I would tell you that she was someone who would be said to own a spirituality that was very firm and non-negotiable, but that wasn't quite the case. I'm speaking about Mother Teresa. Think about the religious figures of the last hundred years. She certainly stands up there as an icon of compassion and healing and deep spirituality. She was known throughout the world for her care of the poor and the ill people of Calcutta, India. She got a Nobel Peace Prize for it. Surprisingly, though, we learned after her death, she often struggled with her understanding of faith and even had moments where she really doubted and wondered, is God's presence close to me at all? In a book of letters printed after her death, it was revealed that she struggled with doubt at all times throughout her ministry, 60 years. And the letters show a different woman than the symbol of Christian, well, you know, compassion and love and unwavering faith, unwavering faith that the media usually portray her as. Listen to this statement. She wrote, Darkness is such that I really do not see neither with my mind nor my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God. The torture and pain, I can't explain. That's a woman of faith? Of course. I love her honesty. I appreciate her transparency. I'm not Mother Teresa by any means, but her approach really resonates with me. So friends, hear very clearly, doubt is not the opposite of belief. And I want, to hear, want you to hear this very clearly, beloved. God does not condemn us when we have questions. Because not only are iconic religious figures of our day people who have some doubts and some questions, there are also some in Scripture. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at a fellow by the name of John the Baptist, one of Jesus' closest friends and relatives, and we're going to read from Luke chapter 7. If you'd grab a Bible, you'll see there's going to be some page numbers on the screen behind me if you're grabbing one from the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, I'd invite you to take that home as our gift to you today, okay? And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage that is set at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when... when um, John the Baptist, when we say Baptist, this is before the Baptists ever came around. It's not like there was a John the Baptist and a Paul the Methodist and somebody Episcopalian, okay? This is just he was John the Baptist because he baptized a lot of people, all right? Like Jesus, 
He was an itinerant preacher who went from town to town to town traveling, and he was only a few months older than Jesus. As a matter of fact, they were cousins, very close relatives, and like Jesus, John had some friends, otherwise known as his disciples, who followed him from place to place. And at one point in his life, early in Jesus' ministry, coming sort of to the tail end of John's ministry, John sent some of his friends, some of his disciples to Jesus with a question. And he wants to know, he says, Jesus, I've got some questions about your authenticity, about your marriage, about your work, and frankly, even about your identity. Look with me. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, we read this. John's disciples told him about all these things. And if you read further previously in the passage, it's all about the things that Jesus is doing. So calling two of them, John sent them to the Lord to ask, are you, who is the one to, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? I've got some questions about you. Now, he's talking to his cousin. They've grown up together. When the men came to Jesus, they said, uh, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. So go tell him what's happening as a result of my ministry. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, I would suggest, friends, that if anyone should have had total certainty about Jesus' ministry, about how authentic he was, and whether or not he really was the Son of God, if anyone should have had a clear understanding about Jesus' identity, it should have been John. He was Jesus' cousin. He would have known, the family would have told him the stories surrounding Jesus' birth. He would have known all about that. They'd done a lot together. They'd grown up together. At one point, early in Jesus' ministry, actually pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he knew all about Jesus. He's had this really special moment. It had to be the highlight of his career, if you will. When he was baptizing Jesus, and as Jesus came out of the water, it, the scriptures say that the, the heavens actually opened up, and this loud, booming voice, God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He'd seen all that happen. He'd once said of Jesus, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. But then you know what happened? Similar to what happens to us in the middle of our faith journey. Long story short, John ran into some trouble. He actually ran afoul of the government and he ended up in jail. A bad time. And in the midst of that bad moment, He's got some questions, and it's really kind of similar to what all of us face when tough times come our way. Doubts begin to creep in, and suddenly John's not so sure of who Jesus was. And he really wants to know this. Hey, cuz, are you really the one who I think you are? Can I really trust this? Because right now, trusting in you and walking in you, with you and following you has really landed me in a, in a heap of trouble. Truth be told, he lost his head. Herod, the ruling authority, eventually cut his head off. I mean, it was, it was bad news. And how does Jesus react? John's friends go and track down Jesus, and they're kind of sheepish. 
can, can you hear them? They, they, they all know what's going on, and they go, we're not the ones asking the question. John's asking the questions. So it's not us who have the doubts, but John over there, is, well, we'll point the finger at him. And uh, do you, uh, do you, are you really the, the guy? Uh, he's been busted. He's afraid. He's freaking out. He's not sure who you are. So you can tell us point blank, and does Jesus slam John for having questions, for doubting? Does he criticize him? So Jesus says to these guys, look, go back. Tell John what you're seeing. People are being healed. Blind people are being able to see. Dead people are being raised. Good news is being preached to poor. In other words, go tell them about all the evidence that you've seen that confirms my identity as the Son of God. And does that, if you will, disloyalty even disqualify John from being part of the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, look, matter of fact, look down in verse 28. What do you see? Jesus actually gives this powerful compliment to John, the guy who's been asking questions. I tell you, among those born of woman, there is no one greater than John. We call him John the Baptist because he baptized people. But we could even at this point call him John the Doubter. And here's the truth, friends. God will not slam you either or be upset with you either if you ask questions. In fact, don't you think, don't you think God would rather you come to him with honest questions than a hypocritical attitude that says, I've got it all neatly sewed up and my faith is tied with a nice bow? Mm -mm. Because that is a phony faith. That's a hypocritical faith. It seems then that doubt could be a good thing. Doubt can actually help us in our faith. Here's why. In his book, Two Minds, The Dilemma of Doubt and How to Resolve It, theologian Os Guinness writes about this. Os Guinness, the guy who is the uh, heir of the Guinness Beer Company, okay? So this guy is a, drinks beer and is a great theologian at the same time. Just saying. I'm not a beer drinker, but I'm just saying, okay? That might blow some people's minds just here today, but anyway. It says this. Oh, I don't know if I had needed to say that, but there you go. Help me, guys. Help me. Keep going. Keep going, right? Yeah, just move on. This is what he said. If ours is, is an examined faith, then we should be unafraid to doubt. Because if doubt is eventually justified, we were believing what was clearly not worth believing. Does that make sense? But if doubt is answered, our faith is going stronger. It knows God more certainly and can enjoy God more deeply. That's where I want to land. I want to take my questions and bring them to God in honesty, not in some hypocritical way. Oh, I've got life all sewed up and neatly tied with a nice ribbon on it. No, I want to come to God raw and authentic and say, this is who I am. Can you help me? And so in that light, I've got some ways in which I could give you some responses today that you could take on if you are well-reasoned um, and if you have some appropriate doubt and if you're a second guesser some things that you can do today in the coming week in preparation for next week. And then, as you do your homework, if you will, on this matter, then we've got some ways in which the church, we're coming alongside you to kind of, again, give you a booster shot and let you kind of move along a little bit here, okay? So first of all, response number one to all of this is, I want you to congratulate yourself. Congratulate yourself for questioning 
and even doubting. Because you know what you've done in doing that? You've proven you are not a robot. You've proven you are actually a human. And if, here's what I believe. You're not simply drinking the Kool-Aid or being a lemming. You're an individual. And I happen to believe that you're an individual made in the image of God. And one of the things that God placed within you is the ability to, to think. God, we read in the scriptures, is a very creative God. And we mirror that to some degree. Some people are creative with their hands or whatever. But one, all of us can be creative with our minds and our souls and our heads. Use what God gave you. Congratulations. God expects you to use your intellect. See, friends, there's a difference between blind faith and an unreasonable faith. An unreasoned faith is unwise, and it's not a thinking faith. It's, it's a Kool-Aid drinking faith. And I want to tell you absolutely certain, with great certainty, that is never the kind of faith that we serve here at First Christian Church. Never. So congratulate yourself for having questions. Secondly, what to do with those questions? Well, first of all, dare to ask God for help. Ask God for help. It's a crazy idea, right? Because what if help, what if help from God really comes along? That's going to mess with your head, right? Well, I hope and pray that it does. Can you be that courageous still? John the Baptist, in the midst of his questions, sends word to Jesus. He says, I got some questions. In the midst of where you are today, can you send some questions God's way? You can ask similar questions. You know, one of the most important things you can do is ask God to bolster your faith in the midst of doubt. In the book of James, which is further on in the Bible, there's a statement that is made this way. You do not have because you do not ask. <laughs> Maybe you should ask God. I know it takes some courageous thinking. It's kind of a leap of faith to say, well, God might even hear if there is a God. I get that. But I dare you to take a run at this. There's a passage of Scripture in the book of Mark where this guy comes to Jesus and he's got a little boy who needs healing. And he can kind of believe that God's going to help out, but he doesn't really. And, and he says, I believe, but help me in my places of unbelief. Isn't that where you live? Isn't that where I live? Turn to God for help, not as a last resort, but as a first response. Ask him to lead you to answers and to give you wisdom and confidence. And you do that by praying. And you go, I don't know how to pray. Well, with a little bit of practice, prayer is quite easy. You simply go, God, are you there? Can you help me? That's prayer. Or maybe it's this, God, are you there? Can you help me? And you don't even say it out loud. Dare to ask God for help. Thirdly, third place for homework this week, hold the questions that you have. Hold them in tension. What I mean is this. We are limited creatures with limited minds who are dealing with matters that relate to an unlimited God. Does that make sense? If God is only as big as I can think, then that God's not big enough for me, and that's no God at all. Even if we were to take all the computing power of all our brains and put them together, and God is only that big, then we've still got a problem, because that means that we together could figure out who God is completely. I need a God who's bigger than that. I need a God who can go beyond what I can think about, because that's the kind of God that I would like to know. It's scary, but that's the sort of God I need. So as a result, there are bound to be some questions that have to wait for now until we get some more evidence. Questions like, God, why didn't I hear from you when I, that time when I was really in need? Or God, I really did ask for a puppy and a baby boy came. What's with that? I didn't need a brother. You wonder about that time when you were certain that God needed to heal your mother. Or you got questions about your marriage. And you go, oh, how's this going to work? Or you've been sitting at the same desk for year after year at work, and you go, is this the vocation you want me to do for the rest of my life, God? It just, 
And there's a big sigh. You can choose to hold those sorts of questions. And if you do, here's what I'm hoping that you will... Here's the place where I'm hoping you're going to come to in the next six weeks. And I'm aware that not everyone in the room is going to get there. But I would hope you would come to this kind of place where you'll say, I may not have answers to every one of my questions. But the answers that I do have, they unmistakably point me to the fact there is a God. And that this God is in heaven and indeed does work towards me in the way in which a heavenly father would love me. And so my faith will stay intact and in fact grow even while there are some remaining issues that may not be known this side of heaven. Friend, you can live there. To not live there is to not have faith and that's a miserable place to live. You can live there That's where I live. It's not irresponsibly ignoring your doubts. It's dealing with them responsibly by making an informed decision to suspend judgment while while we're thinking about, okay, based on the facts that I have, this is what I know, but the rest of the stuff, I'm going to just hold and I'm going to believe, I'm going to have faith. Because you know what, friends? Faith is only possible when humility and wonder are in awe and they're in play. Let me say that again. Faith is only possible when humility and wonder are in play. In other words, I have to be humble enough to say there's a God bigger than I am. If if God's not bigger than I am, then there's no faith involved, right? And I have to be humble enough and have enough questions and wonder to say there's more than what I can understand. That's when faith is possible. So use your doubt as an impetus to grow stronger in your faith, if you will. That's That's what your homework is this week. But I want to give you some ways in which the church is going to come behind you. First of all, I'd invite you back next week because we're going to take on... Today it was just like, if you will, can, can I affirm your doubt and say, the questions you have, fair enough. And then starting next week, we're going to see if we can unpack some of the questions that many of us have. So next week, how can we be sure God really exists? We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about that and what science has to say about that and bring some friends who might be, have those questions, all right? The second is, in a way to encourage you, we want to be certain that you're aware that what the church is doing to support those questions on the inside of your program today on the green, green flap. If you haven't joined a discussion group yet, you can still do that today. And we'd love to hear from you at the welcome desk, okay? You just got to say, I, bring the tough questions. We suspect, we know that in these groups that have been formed already, that there's going to be a lot of skeptics. Welcome. Welcome, please, Okay. And the third thing I wanted you to know is that we have a gift for you as you leave today. It's a little book called The Reason Why Faith Makes Sense. And so as you walk out of the doors today, make sure one gets to every one of our homes, okay? If you represent a house here today, we don't need six in every house, but get one to every house, if you will, please. Okay, our gift to you so that you can begin to wrestle with some of these questions as well. And so to bring this to a close today, I want to go back to um, what I told you about Mother Teresa. I mentioned her doubts, her questions. In one of the letters of the book, this book that was printed after her death, she wrote, I have such deep longing for God, and I'm repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. Saving souls holds no attraction. Heaven means nothing. Pray for me, please, that I keep smiling at him in spite of everything. You go, that really can't be her. Well, we went out on the web and we found some uh, various reports of this. We want you to watch the screens courtesy of ABC News. The video clip is quite old, so it's very grainy. We worked to get it as clean as we could. So you're going to see how old it is. But 
The message is still provocative by all means, and perhaps you wouldn't have expected us to show something of a skeptic viewpoint in church. But take a look, and I think you'll understand it as we go our way, make our way through the rest of the service. In dozens of letters spanning 66 years, Mother Teresa described the emptiness inside her. No faith, no love, no zeal. The saving of souls holds no attraction. Heaven means nothing, she wrote. It has been like this, more or less, from the time I started the work. Her work began when she heard God tell her to open a mission in Calcutta. But once she did, she never heard that voice again. What do I labor for, she wrote after nine years in the slums. If there be no God, there can be no soul. And if there is no soul, then Jesus, you are also not true. But despite the internal crisis, she rose as the example of Christ-like devotion. Even the sisters around her had no idea of uh, the length and, and the depth. Reverend Brian Kolodajczyk is publishing her letters as part of the petition for her sainthood, even though the nun asked that they be destroyed. The lives of the saints are personal, but they're not private. The documents are really great value for her just to speak of her own holiness, and, uh, and then the value for many people who will be in, uh, in, encouraged by her own experience. As many Catholics learn just how long she suffered, they're even more awed by her deeds. Unlike the other saints who might have been uh, going on through the day with a lot of consolation from their prayer, Mother Teresa is really uh, sort of running on empty and doing all these wonderful works. But while the faithful take inspiration from her struggle, some atheists are taking it as confirmation of their own rational doubts and proof that even the faithless can display extraordinary benevolence. Of course, non-believers all over the world display compassion. She was forced to continue going through the motions. She admitted in her letters that she was quite hypocritical in many of her public statements. A decade after her death, this book is certain to stir those who pray the Vatican will canonize this nun from the slums. And if it does, the clergy I spoke with today say Mother Teresa will be the patron saint of skeptics. Bill Weir, ABC News, New York. So here's my sense, friends. I don't find that troubling. As a matter of fact, I find it quite encouraging that here's a woman who was able to do great things for the cause of Christ and still hold questions and still wonder. I find hope for that for me because I by no means am involved in the kind of ministry she's involved in and would touch the millions of lives like she did. But nonetheless, it's where I live. I want to see God work in me and through me in spite of my questions, and because of my questions, and because of my ability to think and hope and believe. I'd invite you to that same understanding, even right now. And here's what we're going to do to kind of firm that up and seal that up today. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then I need to explain something that's going to occur to you in, the, in the, this uh, meeting in, just right now. And that is that Christians gather because they believe that it's important to worship God. And one of the things that happens when Christians gather is they remember that Jesus died for them. We do that because he asked us to do that. And um, we have an event called communion. We're going to step into that right now. If you're outside our tradition, maybe you know it as the Eucharist or uh, other words that are used, the Lord's table. And here's our understanding that the Lord Jesus, we read, on the night he was betrayed, he's got his disciples around him. He took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. So they're watching him break, break this loaf of bread at the table. He goes, this is my body broken for, for you. 
eat it in remembrance of me. And he's talking about how in less than 24 hours, his body is literally going to be broken for their sake. And then scripture says that after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Christians believe that that blood covers our sins so that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sins, but he sees Jesus' sacrificial work all over us. And Paul, the apostle, when he writes that story and explains what happened, he says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this morning, we're going to eat and we're going to drink. And if you have crossed the line of faith, you're invited to join with us. Maybe you're here today and say, I don't know if I've crossed the line of faith. Then I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to cross the line of faith with us right now. And you can eat and drink in remembrance of all that Jesus did for us. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for sending Jesus Christ. And Lord, thank you for making us in a way that gives us the ability ability to think, to reason, and then based on that thinking and that reasoning, to trust and to step into faith. We're doing our level best, God, to let our faith grow today. As scary as it is, so we're asking you to help us. And Lord, In that context, we're asking you, God, to cover our sins fully through the work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom.